Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my co-host, Axel Savari, here for another exciting episode of Legends of the Craft. Today we'll be talking about Albert Pike and his first chapter of Morals and Dogma. So, Morals and Dogma to me is probably the pinnacle of Masonic writing. Albert Pike was a genius, and I'm not using that word lightly. The man was literally a polymath. When he wasn't writing about masonry, he was a statesman, a general. He wrote philosophy, literature. I mean, the man was an incredible fountain of work. In fact, I think he's the only general who fought on the Confederate side of the Civil War that has a statue in Washington, D.C., he was a trapper, he was a hunter, he was a teacher. He did so many different things in his life that when it comes to masonry, it's where everything came together in the accumulation of his great work in masonry as Grand Commander of the Southern Jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite. And he became Grand Commander only about 19 years into his Masonic career. It was a fairly quick rise for him. And you're right, it's like he lived several lives before he came into a life of masonry and this was like right before the civil war in his time as a general so he becomes a mason and he starts uh leading troops in the civil war and afterwards is the grand commander of the southern jurisdiction which includes washington dc and so his work morals and dogma basically becomes the textbook of scottish rite masonry for the next century or so nay not the textbook the bible Exactly. This this book was given to every new initiate of the Southern Jurisdiction for, I believe, almost 100 years. And now the book, Morals and Dogma, I think is so advanced for the generations that have passed that I don't think people even understand it remotely as well as they did back in the 19th century. Yeah, your comparison to the Bible, I think, is really apt because every line has six or seven references that might have been commonplace in the uh, the late 19th century, but now are so obscure that you have to literally read it with a dictionary and Wikipedia open at the same time. This is a book you can read, reread, examine, study, and you know what? You can then read it again because it's a never-ending treasure house of facts. Throughout my Masonic career, this book, every time you take a new degree or you move forward in your understanding of Masonry, this book has something new to offer you every time you reopen it and re-examine it from a new Masonic perspective. Um, when you read the first chapter, when you f are first inducted into Masonry, you know, it's filled with inspiration. You take the second degree and you look back at the first chapter and you see it in a completely different light. Another thing I like about this book is the fact that it doesn't reveal too much. You could read all 32 chapters, all 32 degrees of the Scottish Rite, and... You'll get some 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 crumbs of these degrees, but it's not talking directly about the ritual. It's not revealing anything. 
And this type of writing is really missing from today's masonry. Now everything's an expose. Everything is, oh, let's look at the rituals and let's, you know, decipher the code of Hiram and all these different things. And I really appreciate his ability to conceal the sacredness of our Masonic ceremonies. Yeah, this isn't a ritual monitor. This isn't a guidebook for how to perform masonry. This is a treatise on the philosophy of masonry, the meaning of masonry. And he doesn't have to conceal too much because you wouldn't understand it unless you had gone through it anyway. Or you wouldn't understand fully the message that he's trying to convey. Now, since we're looking at the first degree, the inner apprentice degree, the first chapter of morals and dogma, we're going to look at it through a political lens because there's a lot of politics involved here. And just to preface, we're not taking a, a, a specific point of view. It's not Republican, Democrat, Socialist, Capitalist. We're looking at this, trying to look at this through the eyes of Albert Pike. Absolutely. And he, he didn't come at it from a, a partisan point of view. He was addressing the political question as a whole and wasn't you know, devolving into this right or left wing diatribe, which frankly gets us nowhere. He's looking into the heart of what constitutes government, what constitutes a perfect state, what constitutes true politics. And, you know, for most Masons, religion and politics is are subjects that never enter into the lodge. Those are two subjects we're going to get into heavily in this episode, um, because we feel that when you preclude topics of conversation you are distancing yourself from pieces of the world that need to be examined and we're going to look at albert pike's thoughts on these parts of the world well from a co-masonic point of view we are allowed to discuss politics and religion as long as everybody can remain civil and have a discourse if if we can't then the discussion has to stop so um with that in mind, we're going to move forward to our first quote of Morals and Dogma. Force, unregulated or ill-regulated, is not only wasted in the void like that of gunpowder burned in the open air and steam unconfined by science, but, striking in the dark and its blows meeting only the air, they recoil and bruise themselves. It is destruction and ruin. It is the volcano, the earthquake, the cyclone, not growth and progress. This really lends me to the idea that what we're trying to do in masonry is to regulate a force to change humanity. Masonry isn't whatever we want it to be. Certainly we're entitled to our own opinions and our perspectives on the symbols and the meaning, but we're a workforce employed in the building of the temple. So as a group of people, we are being moved by our leaders towards a purpose, and if that's not the case, we're like what this paragraph says. You're just striking blows into the open air, and that can end up bruising ourselves. You know, what, what stands out from this quote to me is this whole idea that uncontrolled natural energy is destruction and ruin, whereas controlled, regulated natural force is growth and progress. It's about that control. And so here, to me, Pike is setting out um, almost a directive for masonry to take control of the natural world or as much as that is possible to regulate its forces towards a better aim for humanity because nature 
is to me is this blind force, right? It's smashing at random. It doesn't have conscience guiding it. So Pike here is saying that we have to be the guiding conscience of this force so that it doesn't destroy us. Well, and he makes the point of saying steam unconfined by science. So I think that's a very important note to make that masonry, though very religious in its symbolism, is also very scientific. So we need to take this force and it needs to be confined in a scientific way. There needs to be boundaries, boundaries that allow this energy to be channeled in a direction that is useful for all. Well, and two, just the concept of having a direction is fairly novel for this day and age, like just having um, a purpose, a goal, an end to which society is working for the purpose of enhancing civilization. That's kind of fallen by the wayside. It's it's something I feel like was a more popular concept at, in Pike's time. I, I think it would be uh, certainly less difficult for his contemporaries to understand where he was coming from in terms of using natural force to shape and uplift society. I think another interesting thing we can take a look at in terms of force is that it's going to pierce through everything that is in its way. So you create a chamber, you have steam, it's going to blow through this channel and you know it's going to turn a turbine, it's going to make the locomotive turn its wheels and, and march up the mountain, so to say, right? But the steam will find a way. So once you start confining it, if you obstruct it too much, it turns into a volcano, earthquake, cyclone. It's not growth and progress, it's destruction. So it's not just, you know, force, you know, open up in the air, but if you confine it too much, it's destructive. Well, I like what you brought up, Brother Matthias, about the idea of, of force being something that is naturally present. And I think when he's talking about the force of humanity, he's talking about a force that's always latent within us. It's going to do something, right? The force of humanity is going to strike out, exert its force, essentially. And when we don't control it, very dangerous things happen to us. We've seen, I mean, the 20th century is just a parade of examples of unregulated or ill-regulated force that hasn't been confined by science, but is either open in the void or confined too heavily, like you were saying, until it's ready to just burst and explode in our faces. Another example of this is the French Revolution. So you have this period in history where you have a population that's being oppressed, starving, and they rebel. So this force rebels against the king, you know, the Bastille is destroyed, and the result is a reign of terror by Robespierre, by Danton, by, by a whole group of men who decide to recreate civilization in their own view. But it's not by science. It's guided by like almost like a pseudoscience where they had used certain Enlightenment ideals and manipulated them in, into a fashion that allowed them to start murdering the population. They figured, look, if you're a criminal, you'll always be a criminal. So we just have to kill all criminals and then there'll be no more criminals left. I mean, this is obviously not scientific, but at the time they were using pseudoscience as a regulating force. Yeah, you can see an, another example of this in the, in the Soviet Union. They had their own pseudoscience that they had created that resulted in you know, the scientifically sound 
idea being to kill all the experienced farmers and replace them with the proletariat who had no knowledge of agricultural means whatsoever. Which, of course, resulted in the mass starvation that we associate with the same regime. But it's this poor science, this pseudoscience of regulating force. If it's not, it's not only that it has to be regulated, but it has to be regulated properly. And our next quote, Brother Matthias, kind of lays out Pike's opinions on how tyranny uses this force of humanity. Tyrants use the force of the people to chain and subjugate, that is, in yoke the people. Then they plow with them as men do with oxen yoked. Thus, the spirit of liberty and innovation is reduced by bayonets, and principles are struck dumb by cannon shot, while the monks mingle with the troopers, and the church militant and jubilant, Catholic or Puritan, sings tedeums for victories over rebellion. This is a really strong quote, but very truthful in my opinion, because what is a tyrant without the people as a force to direct his tyranny? If everybody said no to a tyrant, the tyrant would be overthrown instantaneously and overnight. It is the force of the people that allows the tyrant to enslave them. Well, again, this brings up something that, in my mind, I don't think a lot of people, especially in America, are comfortable with, which is the idea of the populace as an oxen to be yoked, a force to be subjugated and controlled. You know, especially here in America, we don't like those terms when it comes to organizing society. But I think Pike is pointing out here something that has remained true for all of human history, which is that the great mass of people are just that. They're a great mass, a great force that move blindly, not necessarily knowing what it is that they're working towards. I have a better word for this. It's the mob, brother Axel. It's the mob. And I think uh, people like Albert Pike, even all the way back to Socrates, were suspicious and cautious of democracy. Not that there aren't some excellent elements to democracy, but it is a mob and misdirected it can consume itself. I mean, I think that's the general point he's making about humanity, which, regardless of the political structure that it's contained within, is a constant, right? That we represent to ourselves a dangerous force. And if we are not controlled properly, then we will not only destroy the world around us, but eventually turn upon ourselves. Hence the need for fraternal society. So when we have the people... And on the other end, you have the government. In the middle, you have the civil society. You have fraternal organizations. And it allows people like you and I to join and to participate in a smaller version of democracy to contribute our time, not necessarily being you know, rewarded with payment or with any other means like people in a government does. But it allows us to fill in the middle of this, this puzzle in which is the force of the people. It's almost like fraternalism is a prerequisite to a proper state, that you have to have some experience in fraternal society in order to build proper political society. Because I think Pike would agree here that fraternal society is superior to political society. That political society derives its boundaries, its rights, and its powers from precepts that are inculcated in fraternal societies. Well, think about it. Where do people go to learn politics? Is there a special school? I don't think so. I mean, you can go get a political science degree, but that doesn't really teach you politics. How do you know what it is to have power, to make decisions for other people? 
where you can become a politician, but then you're not necessarily prepared to do the job. So fraternal society allows you to, to enter a group where there's elections and bylaws and you determine how to spend money. So in a very sort of microcosmic way, we're able to learn the lessons necessary to rule over an estate. It's training for politicians. And so when masonry was big and widespread in the 19th century, men would first become masons and then politicians. Or at least if you weren't a mason and a politician, you were surrounded by other politicians that would keep you in check because they had Masonic training. That doesn't mean that every Mason politician is perfect or uncorrupt, but I think it's an excellent place to learn these lessons. Well, it's a training in the utilization of the force that he's talking about here, because he's not just talking about physical violence. He's talking about the force of humanity. And it's interesting here that he points out that when the force of humanity is converted into the force of violence, then innovation is reduced by bayonets. Principles are struck down by cannon shot. Like we can only have one or the other, right? I believe it was Brother Winston Churchill that said the first casualty in any war is truth, right? When we engage in one side of the spectrum, we cancel out the other side of the spectrum for our use. I think at the crux of all of this is liberty, the freedom to join a fraternal society, the freedom to participate in government. Without liberty, we're slaves. That's what the tyrant does. But in a free society, we have liberty. And liberty is derived, I believe, in my opinion, from natural law. You know, it's endowed by our creator. It's an inalienable right given to all people. And even if you're in a jail cell and you can't escape and you have a gun put to your head, you're still free to think the way you wish to think. And you're free to choose whether to die or not. So liberty is not, I, I, you know, there's, there's political liberty in terms of the rights of the state. But as an individual, we always have the liberty to practice what we believe to be right. Well, I like that you bring up natural law because this kind of plays into the point I was making earlier, that there is a, a realm that is superior to the political realm. You know, at least in my opinion, a lot of the way our culture talks about politics and the state and the government is that that is the highest end of human achievement. Right, that, that a properly organized government or that governmental aims and objectives are the highest end of human society. But I think what Pike is referring to here is that natural law and natural rights are superior and predate the state. Without the, the natural law rights that are inherent in, in each person, a proper state cannot be set up to, to benefit humanity. Well, and another way to look at it, too, is that, you know, liberty itself is an essential component to evolution. Going back to his phrase on, on there being innovation and whatnot, how can you do anything new if you're not liberty to err, if you're not liberty to make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes? When you have a population that has to fall in line, let's say like North Korea, how much innovation can take place there? Because if, if you fail, you will be punished. So most people will just fall in line and do exactly what they need to do. Being innovative can be dangerous. But in a society of liberty, innovation will always, always, always take place. And ideally, Freemasonry should be a crucible of innovation. It should be the place, and historically it was, where the new ideas of humanity were brought forward. Where it was a safe place for these for these things to grow and to mature and to 
be appreciated in their time. I think you're absolutely right, Brother Axel. I mean, why do we go to Lodge? To hear the same things that we already know? To read from books we've already read? No, we go to Lodge to learn, to synthesize information. It's a place of debate. It's a place of exchange of ideas. Well, at least it should be these things. And that's why it's important that we should be able to talk about politics, religion, philosophy, history, and anything, science. Anything we can a imagine. Anything. And we have to do it with tolerance and with discipline. But when we can have a room full of people from diverse backgrounds and diverse ideas exchanging these ideas, what do we get? We get innovation. And when you have innovation, you have evolution. And when you have evolution, we have the perfection that masonry seeks. Which, of course, makes masonry the first target of every tyrant throughout history. These places of, of evolution and innovation represent an existential threat to the tyranny that faces humanity and has since time immemorial. These kinds of places, whether it was Freemasonry, the ancient mysteries, it doesn't really matter the name that it had, but these groups of people coming together to innovate, to evolve, to push the boundaries of human reality is always the target of despotism and tyranny. I think there's a great place to move on to our next quote actually the onward march of the human race requires that the heights around it should blaze with noble and enduring lessons of courage deeds of daring dazzle history and form one class of the guiding lights of man they are the stars and coruscations from that great sea of electricity the force inherent in the people to strive to brave all risks to perish, to persevere, to be true to oneself, to grapple body to body with destiny, to surprise defeat by the little terror it inspires. These are the examples that the nations need and the light that electrifies them. Courage is such an important component of society. We need it. We need people that can defy boundaries. That's how innovation takes place. And when we see one person doing the right thing, it's easier for us to do the right thing. But when everybody doesn't want to do the right thing, then it's much harder for us to, to take up the mantle of righteousness. You're right, it has a compounding effect, and, and that's why it requires courage to break through the barrier of, of the social pressure that keeps everybody at the same level, at the same state of mind and way of thinking. To break beyond that is courageous. To think things that are heretical or antithetical to a tyranny or to a despotism, those are dangerous things, and, and it's not just bravery you know, in the face of, of your body being threatened. But you, when you stand up against the received knowledge of your time, that's a, an emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually radical thing to do that requires great bravery. One problem, I think, in our modern era is that we as a society are no longer acknowledging heroes. And what I mean by that is that historically we have to find every defect of every person that did something great. We reduce. We, we reduce. reduce these great people down to, you know, their baser elements or the the everydayness of their lives as opposed to, you know, the noble and enduring lessons of courage as brother Pike says that these people produce. People are not perfect, but heroes they are never not, will be. But heroes are not people. No. Heroes are the myths of people. They are the great and daring acts of people. They're not the people themselves. They are their own mythology. Well, look at Thomas Jefferson. 
I mean, writer of the Declaration of Independence, a founding father, a writer, a scientist. He even wrote his own Bible. But he fornicated with some of his slaves, and in fact, he owned slaves. So today, there is this idea amongst many people, especially younger people, that Thomas Jefferson is a bad person. We look at George Washington. Oh, he also had slaves. You know, he was rich, and he was white, and these things you know, degrade their character. I think it's important to note that even though slavery is a terrible institution, that there is a context to these events that took place in the past. And it's not so easy for us at this point in history to go back and judge every person because they did not fulfill our criteria of being a good person. Just like one day we will all be judged for all the ridiculous things we're doing that we think are normal today, right? Yeah, and, and humanity hungers after these lessons. We want heroes. We need lessons of noble and daring courage because that's the only thing that inspires the rest of us who might not have the bravery to break beyond the social barrier to do something, to contribute something in that direction. We can even look at The Last Jedi, you know, the last Star Wars movie that came out. I mean, Luke Skywalker, a hero for many kids all over this country, all over the world, in this last episode of Star Wars, he's angry, he's defeated, he wants to just destroy the Jedi Order. This is kind of the, the current mindset of society, which is our heroes are being destroyed because they, we must see them as imperfect. And though there is some reality to that, I think it's very dangerous also that we degrade every great person into their weaknesses. Because ultimately like yes they are people and they are imperfect and it makes a better movie to have a grittier character who's more realistic that we can relate to. Uh, I, I don't know if it was a better movie but that's a different podcast but we need more than that we need superhuman stories and myths to guide us forward because without superhuman stories and aims and aspirations we might not even reach the level of human well, we will not break the chains of a tyrant if we can't be heroic. And I think in a totalitarian society, they break the population of this idea of heroism. But deep inside, there's something innate within us that still loves the story. So as soon as we get an inkling of somebody doing something heroic, we will champion that person. So let's move on a little bit here and talk about society in a wider sense and use a direct uh, piece of Masonic symbolism through Brother Pike's eyes to, to take a look at this. The rough ashlar is the people as a mass, rude and unorganized. The perfect ashlar or cubicle stone, symbol of perfection, is the state, the rulers deriving their powers from the consent of the governed, the constitution and laws speaking the will of the people, the government harmonious, symmetrical, efficient, its powers properly distributed and duly adjusted in equilibrium. What Abel Pike is talking about here is the republic. Not to be misconstrued with democracy. There are democratic elements in the American society of all the Western governments, and, and frankly, in, even in the Western world now, but a republic is different from democracy. A republic is representative government. We entrust heroes in some senses, or people better than us, to go to Congress and to make decisions on our behalf. We're not very happy with this system today, but I still think 
there's merit to it, and I still think that it's better than the mob deciding everything. Well, I really like the idea in this quote that Brother Pike is putting forward that the perfecting of the ashlar is moving from a people to a state. Because while a people may compose a state, they are not a state inherently. A state requires crafting, direction, channeling of that force, and sculpting it into something that is greater than the constituent parts that make it up. Human society should be more than humans. Like we were talking about with with the myths, right? Our heroes should be more than human. Otherwise, they're not heroes. Our states should be more than communities or loosely organized organizations. This should be something grand, a, a great goal that we've worked towards. Well, we'll use the lost symbol in masonry of the beehive. The state is a beehive, and it does have a queen, and there are worker bees. There are drone bees. There's all sorts of different bees being employed towards this glorious thing we call the beehive. That's the state, and that's the, the cubic stone. That's the perfect ashlar that we're trying to achieve. And our state today, though imperfect in many ways, it's far better than many of the preceding governments that came before. It, it truly stands above the rest. And, it, of course, it's a continual process. I mean, I don't think any Mason or even any regular human being would agree that our stone is perfect. We certainly have much more work to do, but it's the. I don't think we even think on a day-to-day level anymore of chipping away at that stone or that there even is a stone for us to work on that seems like something beyond our realm of capability yeah i agree with you in some ways in other ways i think if you look at a lot of the the present movements in terms of um how people address one another and in terms of um lbtq rights etc etc i think people are trying to perfect this cubic stone but we're no longer trying to perfect it in the ways we were 300 years ago. People are getting fed now. People can go vote. Uh, women and men can go to schools. You don't, get, you don't get shot for holding a contrary political opinion. Exactly. I, th- I think a lot of the big ones have been conquered, at least to a, a great degree. So now we're fighting little battles. And the problem with little battles is that there are a lot of groups, a lot of ideas, and people don't know how to focus all that in one direction going back to the steam, the force of the people. So it's being directed in many different directions, and I think that's why there's such a divide in the world today. Because this is not just a, a question of the United States. I mean, if the, the divide we see amongst Republicans and Democrats here in the States, you see the same division everywhere worldwide. It's Latin America, Europe, Africa, Asia, it's the same thing. There, there's a great divide because this force is not concentrated. So I guess my question then would be, what do you think Masonry's specific role into the future is in helping to perfect this Ashlar? Because if we look at, say, the past 200 years with British Freemasonry expanding alongside the British Empire, I mean, they were using distinctly Masonic principles to expand a political system. And it's fallen into ruin at this point. Do you think that masonry is here to directly control and shape and and channel this force of society, or or do we have a more subtle role to play? That's an interesting question. I could only say that it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is masonry cannot take a certain political view, but it can teach us 
how to take a political point of view. It is a school. It's a university. It's a training ground for men and women to learn the art of statecraft. It's a place for us to learn to debate and discuss in a civil manner. It's a place for us to learn virtue and what is vice. Like learning basically the qualities of heroism, of courage, and of daring. These kind of lost virtues that used to guide our social thinking. Well, even to a greater degree, think about it. Where do we learn ethics? Where do we go to learn how to conduct ourselves? We don't learn that in school. I would say we learn that in religion, but a lot of people don't go to church anymore. Where do we learn that? We could say the family. A lot of single-parent families, so that's difficult. Or people are more entertained with sports and video games and all these other activities. So where do we learn ethics? Where do we learn how to conduct ourselves? And I think masonry is the missing key. It is the piece of the puzzle which allows us to go from young adolescents to adults. It allows us to learn what we must do and how we must do it. Again, this isn't whether you're right or left because people that know what they're doing can be of either side. But there's a proper way to conduct yourselves, and we have lost that. That's that transcendent training that moves beyond taking one position or another or being left-wing or right-wing or capitalist or communist. Those things are lesser than proper training in human ethics because those things are universal being able to have a civil discussion that is universally a virtue no matter what your political or ethical stance is you need to be able to express it properly and and communicate it efficiently and look at the scottish right you have a system that has democratic elements it has elements of a republic it has elements of an empire it has elements that are capitalistic and elements that are socialistic the Scottish Rite does not reject or accept any of this. It puts them in their proper place and allows them to experience and use them towards the betterment of the state. Well, I think that's what masonry does generally for humanity is that it takes everything that we've created, whether it's systems of morality, of economic organization, of political utility. It makes everything that human beings have created a tool for the use of future human beings without you know elevating one tool over the other it makes it it democratizes the toolbox of humanity's ideas so if we take this idea of this this toolbox of all the things we've learned as humanity and we take the idea that masonry is a place to learn how to conduct ourselves in society we have a vital mission and i think as masons in totality, all groups, all jurisdictions, we've dropped the ball. And we need to get back in line and march forward towards a better society in which we educate young men and women how to conduct themselves in a rational, logical fashion. We need to take seriously once more the duty of masonry. And our next quote here from Brother Pike talks exactly about this Masonic duty. It is also the duty of masonry to assist in elevating the moral and intellectual level of society, in coining knowledge, bringing ideas into circulation, and causing the mind of youth to grow, and in putting, gradually, by the teachings of axioms and the promulgation of positive laws, the human race in harmony with its destinies.
destinies is plural. Why do you think that is? Because we have more than one that are open to us. We are humanity. The entire universe lays open to us. What our ultimate destiny is, is undecided. And I don't think it's limited to one path or another. I think we'll figure that out as we fulfill these destinies. But just the idea that humanity has a destiny is foreign to our society. That would be a great place for masonry to start in reinstilling some of these values. So how do we as masons bring this back into our mode of reality? I think Brother Pike hits the nail on the head for us here, Brother Matthias. It's causing the mind of youth to grow. I mean, what historically has advanced the human race out of backwards or bigoted ideas? It's the death of the people that hold those ideas and the emergence of new human beings that don't hold those ideas. It's really that simple. Like That's how human beings change. Old, backwards, bigoted people die, and their beliefs die with them, and their children don't hold the same beliefs. You know, there's a lot of mockery of the millennials today, you know, that they're lazy or they just want to go play all the time. There's, there's all these sort of stereotypes. Um, I myself am not a millennial. Uh, I think you are. Brother, I am actually. a millennial. You're a millennial. Um, my experience with, with millennials is that they are, in fact, smarter, more innovative, and in many ways more amazing than my generation or the generations older than me. The problem is they are different. And they go into companies and structures that are antiquated and old and don't permit them to really bring out the greatness that they have within. So this is where we have to adapt in masonry our practices and the way we deal with people in order to harness this power, to regulate this power of the millennials because they're the ones that are going to transform masonry for this new age. Well practices certainly like we masonry should adapt as the world changes but i think brother pike also says how do we change how do we cause the mind of youth to grow it's the encouragement of positive laws and the teachings of axioms he's talking about natural law he's talking about the perennial philosophy the unchanging information that masonry is now a custodian of that is how we cause the mind of youth to grow and perfect society is by not necessarily reinstilling, but maintaining natural law in the face of those who would tear it down and put it and and replace it with man's law. And if I could distill your idea, Brother Axel, I'm going to say simply, we need to give people purpose. Every millennial that I deal with uh, in the organization, the Masonic organization I belong to, they are looking for purpose. They need a direction. And when people give them a framework in which to grow in a, that, this specific direction of, of what we're talking about here, they flourish and they grow. We must distill this down to a simple point, and that is purpose. That's what Albert Pike, in my opinion, is talking about. We need to have purpose. We all need to be marching towards a victory of this purpose. It doesn't matter what it is. We just need to be moving in that direction. Well, to distill your point down even further, Brother Matthias, I I think what that is, that destination, is unknown to us. And it always has been throughout human history. We march forward into the unknown. What is before us is a mystery. But that allows us to populate that mystery, to populate that unknown world with as many purposes and destinies and dreams that we can come up with. It's, it's literally a blank canvas every day that we move forward that we could paint something new on. 
Isn't that why we became Masons? Because of the mystery? We want to solve a mystery. That's why someone's a scientist, a poet, a writer. They're venturing into the unknown. It calls to us like a mistress. We have no other option but to follow. And so we go into the unknown. And I think this next quote from Albert Pike will finish off this podcast perfectly. Though masonry does not usurp religion, prayer is an essential part of our ceremonies. It is the aspiration of the soul towards the absolute and infinite intelligence, which is the one supreme deity most feebly and misunderstandingly characterized as an architect. Certain faculties of man are directed toward the unknown, thought, meditation, prayer. The unknown is an ocean, of which conscience is the compass. Thought, meditation, prayer are the great mysterious pointings of the needle. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Clomasonry. Universal Clomasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.